So just a, ba- a bit of background for our listeners. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Casualties of History Twitter account, by the way, you're listening to Casualties of History, in case you didn't know, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine, um, the Casualties of History Twitter account posted a kind of legendary image from, it would appear to be, what, maybe the mid early to mid-1960s? Somewhere in there. Of... Of the so-called New Left Review battle bus. Um, which existed, which why? I, Explain to the listeners. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why you it existed. You don't know why. why no, I mean, the, the, well, there, the, there were New Left clubs right. around the country. Um, and so I imagine that there, and there was some, some kind of loose, I think, affiliation mm-hmm. between the journal and the clubs. Um, so, you know, maybe they were kind of touring and campaigning I sort of imagine it probably had to do with the anti-nuclear campaign, but I'm very much making it Yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, You don't have any secret knowledge (laughs) that I don't have. No. I figured I just meant it had something uh, to do with the clubs, I would have to assume. But it says review, not clubs, on the side of the bus, right? Mm. So look up uh, New Left Review Battle Bus in Google Image Search. You'll see the image. It's a, I think it's a VW minibus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. it's a very 60s image. It's black and white. Uh, and you just, like, you look at it and you feel the vibe of this milieu. And you want to you, you be there. <laughs> um, so it's a cool photo. But the only person who is clearly identifiable from it is Stuart Hall, um, the legendary social theorist who was the first editor of the New Life Review. And, you know, so many figures from this milieu became such important radical intellectuals that we were interested to try to identify the other there's about 10 people in the photo Something right like i mean that. it's like a few of them are sitting on the roof mm-hmm. yeah so we wanted to know who the rest of them were we tweeted it out asking if you can help us identify anyone we will then read a message of your choosing on air which is why we're having this little discussion um so uh, you know, I don't think we definitively ID'd anyone, mm-hmm. but uh, we do. We did have some pretty constructive help from uh, George Bodie and Phoebe Braithwaite, uh, who in particular identified that there's a person with a kind of thatch of black hair sitting on the ground who appears to be Catherine Hall. Um, and, you know, Phoebe and George seemed to sort of collaborate in figuring this out. So we told them that they could have a message read on air. And it emerged that they had met each other canvassing for Labor's heroic doomed campaign at the end of 2019. That's incredible. Um, so the message is as follows. Please just dedicate the message to Kensington Labor Special Ops, who came within a whisker of saving the seat in December against the massed forces of reaction. That's where we met. Wow. Yeah, that worked out even better than I could have imagined. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, if anyone else can identify anyone else in this photo, the promise remains standing. Mm -hmm. Uh, We will read more messages on the air, ideally about doomed heroic struggles. (laughs) But really about anything that you force us to say. So, I mean, as long as you help out with the photo. Yeah, it's a lot of power. (laughs) Um, Okay, (laughs) great. So, why don't we get into it then?
All right, so let's get started on this episode. We're covering chapters six and seven, um, which begins part two of the book. Chapter six is called Exploitation. Chapter seven, The Field Laborer. Um, we also, if you are paying attention in the Slack or follow us on Twitter, we also recommended you watch this movie that uh, Gabe discovered called Comrades that's about a group of people that are mentioned in Chapter 7, a group of field laborers. So we'll also be talking about that movie, um, which Gabe and I watched over the course of the past 24 hours. It's a three-hour movie, so I think we both took it in pieces. Um, But uh, yeah, so that's another thing that we'll be uh, getting into. Yeah, it's also literally in pieces. If you're in the United States, you you have to watch it on Vimeo in 14-minute segments. Of which there are, I think, thirteen. Yes, that's correct. So it's so it's literally in pieces. Yeah, but it was good. I enjoyed it despite various challenges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> including the formatting of fourteen-minute chunks. Um, all right. So why don't we start part two, chapter six? Part two. Yeah. We open with a uh, with mention of John Fellwall again, and then we have a aristocrat describing a mill. Yeah, I mean. Uh, you know, there's a interview with Thompson that was done in the late 70s um, by the Mid-Atlantic Radical Historians Organization, uh, in which he talked about the debate with Althusser, which we covered in our last episode, and said, I thought this is, I'm not quoting verbatim here, but he says uh, something like, you know, uh, any Marxist has to be a structuralist somewhat. Uh, and I think people you know, mistook from the tone of my attack on Althusser that I'm not at all interested in uh, sort of structural analysis. But if you read my chapter called Exploitation, you'll see that's not true. Uh, So I found that interesting to know in terms of how he thought about this chapter, right? That this was the kind of closest he was going to come Mm -hmm. to, I think, what he's saying when he says structuralism there, as I'm sure Assad would say, is not actually that helpful. But nonetheless, this is the closest that Thompson thinks he's going to come to a kind of more scientific approach. And so what's the chapter like that actually distinguishes it in that way? How would you how would you sort of characterize this chapter? Well, it's not actually taking a scientific approach, but that's okay. <laughs> You've let the Althusserians bat you down a little bit. I was, I was always pro-Althusserian, secretly. Okay, um, okay. Yeah. Well, because Althusser is how you get to Stuart Hall, in part, and you know that's that's my real that's where really where I stand. But um, you know, I think that he's trying to deal here with like an intensely debated empirical question, right? That's which that, is, that, and that's what the bulk of the chapter is about. Which is, did the industrial revolution make things better or worse for for common people? Mm-hmm. And there's just you know reams and reams of of scholarship debating this, and I think in certain ways, you know. We continue to have versions of this debate today. Um, sure. It's related, for example, to the kind of 1619 debate and the kind of the relationship between slavery and capitalism. You know, what was involved in industrial takeoff? What was the human price paid? Was, you know, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. I mean, it struck me that what Thompson is doing is taking this empirical question that he's not providing new empirical answers to, like quantitatively, right? He hasn't, mm-hmm. he hasn't got, done, gone and done new research on, you know, the caloric intake of, you know, weavers, uh, sure. you know, between 1798 and 1824 or something like that. Um, and people do do that kind of thing, but that's not what he's doing. Instead, he's saying, um, 
that there's no, it's an indelibly political question. Um, there's no way of approaching it except by understanding that, uh, you know, people are kind of struggling over it really intensely in the moment. He's not doing new research necessarily, but it is a qualitative question for him where he's pulling out these sort of evidences of the increased struggle that was going on in in desperation. Um, So why don't we start and get into the actual chapter? So I I think it sets the tone with the opening. This I mentioned this aristocrat is recording his diaries um, and he finds a new cotton mill. He says, with the bell ringing and the clamor of the mill, all the veil is disturbed. Treason and leveling systems are the discourse and rebellion may be near at hand. So already we have this problem that you referred to as sort of like structure versus the political question. There's a sense here that the new cotton mill in itself is creating a new type of discourse in person and behavior, even from the aristocrats. Um, so that's how he opens, and it's. I think it's a good way of it's the problem he grapples with throughout the entire chapter and in the following sections too. Yeah, I also think there was a really interesting role here, and more even than in previous chapters uh, of the war with France, um, because he's here. He starts to say that um, right. It's not just that all of this is happening against the background of a war which is driving up prices and making people miserable. And it's not just a war against a revolutionary mm-hmm. power, um, right, which gives some ideas to English working class people, but that really the war against France is fundamentally an ideological confrontation, right? It's a war against Jacobinism and its basic core character is to get the English working class to accept its own fate, um, right? That that's really mm-hmm. what it's about. Um, he has a set of quotes on 196 and 197 where he says, um, the first he's quoting ha- these other scho- older scholars, the Hammonds could never have forgotten for one moment that it was also a war against Jacobinism. The history of England at the time discussed in these pages reads like a history of civil war. This is the opening of the introductory chapter of The Skilled Laborer. And in the conclusion to The Town Laborer, among other comments of indifferent value, there is an insight which throws the whole period into sudden relief. And there's a long quote. At the time when half Europe was intoxicated and the other half terrified by the new magic of the word citizen, the English nation was in the hands of men who regarded the idea of citizenship as a challenge to their religion and their civilization, who deliberately sought to make the inequalities of life the basis of the state and to emphasize and perpetuate the position of the work people as a subject class. Hence it happened that the French Revolution has divided the people of France less than the Industrial Revolution has divided the people of England. Right. And so, again, this political counter-revolution happening, I think, is his big contribution, right, compared to just Industrial Revolution as something changing. Though also the question of population comes in quite a lot. Yeah. Um, You know, even on this page, he says these are the three factors. There's this political counter-revolution, there's the industrial revolution and the technological changes, and then there's the population growth in England and the ideological effect that has with Malthusianism. Yeah, that's in 195? Yeah, I mean, it's throughout the chapter 197, he lists these three um, factors as sort of key shaping things. Um, But he's talking about the ideological factor of sort of disciplining the poor. Right. Yeah, here again, also, he talks about apartheid, right, as a word that he uses to describe class Mm -hmm. rule, which he's referred to before, obviously. You know, I mean, it seems to me that here, the kind of core thing that he's trying to do um, 
is escape the empirical debate more than decide it, right? That it, he, it, it seems like really he, he's saying it doesn't matter which side is right, actually, whether, you know, the caloric intake of the weaver and whatever goes up or down. That's not actually the point because the qualitative evidence um, is evidence of discontent and counter-revolution. And that tells us what we need to know about uh, how people ex- experience this moment. Yeah, there's so on the question of empiricism on 204, he has this great sort of critique of empiricism where he's recounting some of these debates and he says, you know, these all deserve attention. They might tell us something. Um, The objection to the reigning academic orthodoxy is not to empirical studies per se, but to the fragmentation of our comprehension of the full historical process. First, the empiricist segregates certain events from this process and examines them in isolation. Since the conditions which give rise to these events are assumed, they appear not only as explicable on their own, but as inevitable. The wars had to be paid for out of heavy taxation. They accelerated growth in this way and retarded it in that. Since this can be shown, it is also implied that this was necessarily so. Um, So he's, I think, again, he's trying to avoid this entire debate while also intervening in it. Um, but what he's really interested in about is what created these conditions where the caloric intake changes or doesn't and where the common laborer is now stuck without a common or has some level of market independence. Yeah. On the next page, actually on 205, there's this passage, which I have recognized from seeing quoted, I realized when I read it. I think it's one of the more heavily quoted passages of the whole book, um, where he says, uh, I'm going to read a long quote. It is perfectly true that what the empiricist points to is there. The orders in council had in 1811 brought certain trades almost to a standstill. Rising timber prices after the wars inflated the cost of building. A passing change of fashion, lace for ribbon, might silence the looms of Coventry. The power loom competed with the hand loom. But even these open-faced facts, with their frank credentials, deserve to be questioned. Whose council? Why the orders? Who profited most from corners and scarce timber? Why should looms remain idle when tens of thousands of country girls fancied ribbons but could not afford to buy? By what social alchemy did inventions for saving labor become engines of immiseration? The raw fact, a bad harvest, may seem to be beyond human election, but the way that fact worked its way out was in terms of a particular complex of human relationships, law, ownership, power. When we encounter some sonorous phrase such as the strong ebb and flow of the trade cycle, we must be put on our guard. For behind this trade cycle, there is a structure of social relations, fostering some sorts of expropriation, rent, interest, and profit, and outlawing others, theft, feudal dues, legitimizing some types of conflict, competition, armed warfare, and inhibiting others, trades unionism, bread riots, popular political organization, a structure which may appear in the eyes of the future to be both barbarous and ephemeral. Yeah, I'd put lots of exclamation points next to that uh, passage. (laughs) Ah, that's what he's doing. So, I mean, again, the project here, it's interesting that that quote you read at the beginning um, before we jumped into this chapter about this being the closest he gets to sort of a structuralist analysis, since he's still doing the same thing of saying the political context here and the traditions that people were drawing on shapes things as much as, say, the steam engine or the cotton mill. Um, and that's exactly what he's doing in the passage you read as well. Yeah, I also think, uh, I mean, not to pile on him, but uh, that quote 
I mean, people often use structural or structuralist to just mean materialist in a kind of obvious way, you know? Yeah. And I think that's clearly what he's thinking when he said that, because like there is a material structure, right? That's, I guess, what it seems to imply. Right. I think that goes to the point from last week that he didn't totally get what that was all about, but that's okay. We don't need, we don't need to dwell there forever. But again, it is, he is trying to make sense of this sort of um, tension throughout this chapter. He's sort of saying, you know, on the one hand, a new type of product mode of production and social relations gives rise to quote, like a new human. Um, He uses the word new type of person and things like that. Um, But on the other hand, it's not automatic. Yeah. And in fact, if you look at the, data on this you know this new type of person was still the minority for a while it's not that as soon as the cotton mill comes in there's sort of a working class this process plays out unevenly across time yeah it's interesting you have to kind of admire i felt like i have to kind of admire this chapter in the way that um it has the feeling to it and you can sort of again get this flavor from the later comments on it of something he knew he had to do Right. Like mm-hmm. at some point in the course of this book, he has to have a chapter called Exploitation. Right. That's about, um, you know, like this is the most economic moment of this mm-hmm. book. And, you know, I, I, like he's not actually doing the thing that you would sort of expect in a certain way, which is re- where he would like read all of those studies about, you know, diet and currency and so on. And then like pick which side he comes down on and make he's not actually doing that. Instead, he's like fully trying to circumnavigate mm-hmm. it. Um, which I'm not sure is what I would do if I were him, but I really, I kind of respect Uh the, I respect the move, you know, um, that he is not actually ultimately that interested in the problem here. As he says, uh, on page 211, simple points must be made. It is quite possible for statistical averages and human experiences to run in opposite directions. A per capita increase in quantitative factors may take place at the same time as a great qualitative disturbance in people's way of life, traditional relationships, and sanctions. People may consume more goods and become less happy or less free at the same time. Um, So I feel like there he's dismissing the whole problem in a way that, like, you know, I think at least it's it's an admirable consistency. It's also interesting to realize in these pages uh, how much of this debate is with Hayek? Yeah, right. Hayek comes out explicitly in this. Uh, on page 210, he's referenced um, about a symposium that was the work of specialists who for some years have been meeting regularly to discuss the problems of the preservation of a free society against the totalitarian threat. Um, and that's who he's arguing with, and at least on one side. Yeah, I mean, as always, the Stalinist to the tacit opponent on the other side, but he's he's not really addressing that here, yeah. Right, right, exactly. I mean, what he's doing is just once again saying, like, well, qualitative research here shows, actually, let me just read some to you. And then he's including these, like, big passages from various documents at the time that sort of speak to this greater misery. Um, so it's, it, I mean, it is in keeping with the rest of the book as far as how he's answering this stuff. Yeah, and his, I mean, the depth of his respect for working people's analyses of their own situation, which I do think is, like, probably his greatest quality, you know, as a historian. Mm-hmm. Uh, on 206, this is a cool moment, I thought, on 206, uh, he quotes a group of Leicester framework knitters uh, in 1817 who put forward an underconsumption theory of capitalist crisis. So a kind of proto-Keynesian 
idea, which mm-hmm. I'll quote from them here. Um, that in proportion as a reduction of wages makes the great body of the people poor and wretched, in the same proportion must the consumption of our manufactures be lessened. That if liberal wages were given to the mechanics in general throughout the country, the home consumption of our manufacturers would be immediately more than doubled. And consequently, every hand would soon find full employment. That to reduce the wage of the mechanic in this country so low that he cannot live by his labor in order to undersell foreign manufacturers in a foreign market is to gain one customer abroad and lose two at home. And I think that, you know, you see versions of this, obviously, in in every chapter of this book where he... um, is very committed to showing not just the kind of heroically tragic quality of the analyses, you know, kind of romantic way of the analyses that people had of their situation, mm-hmm. but the real intellectual work that they were doing to, through their struggle, right, to understand what was happening. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's important as he works his way through this period because there's so much, I mean, I'm sure like that Hayek volume, I've not read it, but I'm sure it's full of, uh, you know, basically accounts of the movements, the uh, the kind of people's movements of this time as being, you know, irrational and insane mob type things. Mm. And, you know, they're smashing machines. How fucking crazy is that? <laughs> um, and so, you know, the uh, the kind of condescension of posterity thing, obviously, right. that is the core of this book, I feel like is very much on display here. I mean, it's hard not to like an author who gives more block quote room to the framework knitters of <laughs> of this era than to Hayek and even the Hammonds, the other sort of um, analysts that he's arguing with. Yeah. Do you have anything else to say about this chapter? I'm not sure I actually do. I think there's one, it's worth saying in this chapter, just he's sort of laying out, he again goes back to this argument about, you know, this is the making of the working class, not working classes, plural, there is a commonality and on 194, he sort of lays out, I think, what he's going to show in this section of the book. He says, um, when every caution has been made, the outstanding fact of the period between 1790 and 1830 is the formation of the working class. This is revealed first in the growth of class consciousness, the consciousness of an identity of interests as between all these diverse groups of working people and as against the interests of other classes. And second, in the growth of corresponding forms of political and industrial organization. By 1832, there were strongly based and self-conscious working class institutions, trade unions, friendly societies, educational and religious movements, political organizations, periodicals, working class intellectual traditions, working class community patterns, and a working class structure of feeling. So I think, I mean, at least based on what Chapter 7 shows, this is going to be sort of this is the preview of what he's trying to establish at this point. Yeah, I mean, where you left off right before a paragraph that I think describes the book as a whole, almost better than any other paragraph in the whole book. Um, I mean, it will be familiar ground, but uh, the making of the working class is a fact of political and cultural as much as of economic history. It was not the spontaneous generation of the factory system, nor should we think of an external force, the industrial revolution, working upon some nondescript, undifferentiated raw material of humanity and turning it out at the other end as a fresh race of beings. The changing productive relations and working conditions of the Industrial Revolution were imposed not upon raw material, but upon the freeborn Englishman. And the freeborn Englishman as pain had left him, or as the Methodists had molded him. The factory hand or stockinger was also the inheritor of Bunyan, of remembered village rights, of notions of equality before the law, of craft traditions, 
He was the object of massive religious indoctrination and the creator of new political traditions. The working class made itself as much as it was made. So like that feels like it should be on page one of the book. <laughs> yeah. Or like if you have to give like an excerpt of the book, at least do that one yeah. instead of <laughs> the more famous passages. Also, we're saying before we move on this because it's the, the, the economic chapter. This chapter is full of great lists of trades at, at several different points, which I feel like. You know, we and our our listeners have picked up on at various points. Can I say, so he has a several page address from a journeyman cotton spinner, um, and he, which is another of these great trades that he's listing. And I just want to say, I thought it was like, it was really interesting in that he's showing sort of his substantiation of why he's not so interested in this debate, because there are felt grievances that are different than just economic. And I think it's worth reading since it sort of gives a sense of what people are going to be organizing around in the next chapter. Um, so I just want to read a little bit from it. Um, on page 202, is he's been doing this for like four pages, quoting this cotton spinner. Um, but he says, What his address does is to itemize one after another the grievances felt by working people as to changes in the character of capitalist exploitation. The rise of a master class without traditional authority or obligations, the growing distance between master and man, the transparency of the exploitation at the source of their new wealth and power, the loss of status and above all of independence for the worker, his reduction to total dependence on the master's instruments of production, and so on and so on it goes. But I think it just it just reminded me of the discussion we'd had of the sort of naval um, uprisings and the felt grievances that were being enacted and and responded to there. I just thought it was worth mentioning as far as what, okay, if he's not concerned with the absolute standard of li living, what are these grievances that Thompson is so convinced are sort of making things on the whole worse or harder? Yeah, I mean, I um, can I indulge in talking for a second about being a historian myself and struggling with these questions? Yeah, of course. So I'm finishing my book right now, and uh, it's about Pittsburgh and starts in the fifties, you know, golden age of like industrial capitalism. And I think many of us have this idea, this, this whole chapter resonated for me because, uh, I think many of us, you know, have this idea of like post-war social compact, you know, it was messed up in a bunch of ways, but the people who like had access to it had it pretty good. Um, and it's true that the average steelworker in Pittsburgh in 1950 brought home the equivalent of today's, um, I think, between fifty and $55,000. Right. Um, which, you know, I mean, like, is higher than your average annual income for working class people today or for anyone. Um, and that that is the truth in that, like, mythology. Uh, and I went and I – so as I've been finishing my book, I went and I read – the Department of La the U.S. Department of Labor produced, probably still does periodically, um, a kind of typical family budget for you know all cities in the country and what they should like. Basically, what you know an ordinary working class family should be able to afford, down to like how many pairs of shorts can they buy for the boy, how many like ribbons can they buy for the daughter. Uh, it, like it's very detailed, uh, and so I was able to kind of match these things up and. Uh, you know, basically this like the standard of living for people who, you know, meet the, this description of like, you know, a steelworker household in 1950 in Pittsburgh, like they rent a, a three room house or three room apartment, excuse me. You know, they drive a used car, mm -hmm. you know, they can buy a couple new pieces of clothes for their kids each year. 
it's like not particularly like comfy, you know? Um, and it was, I was thinking, I was just working on this recently. And I was thinking about it, reading this chapter and reading this passage because of how big the gap feels like between like, if you think of like the good old days of the industrial working class, the unionized industrial working class in the fifties compared to, um, all the actual challenges of like making that life work, you know, and they weren't in an era of like disaster the way these people were in Thompson. Um, but I think that's true of like labor history in almost any moment, right? That uh, people are always like stretching and scraping and figuring it out and struggling in ways that uh, constantly are getting mythologized by right. something else. And so if you're not actually, I mean, this is a good argument for the qualitative work of seeing what people actually were saying and thinking at the time. Yeah, I mean. Um, this is now a Pittsburgh podcast. It's just all steelworker <laughs> mythology all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. Um, but, um, you know, they, it, and this is in the Department of Labor Family Budget. that is, They expect 50 hours of housework from the wife per week. Wow. Um, so, like, that alone, and you're like, wait a second, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Finally, we've gotten discussion of Pittsburgh. My dad, who is an avid listener of this show, will be pleased to finally have something relevant to his interests. Alex is from Pittsburgh, everyone. I'm a scholar of Pittsburgh. It's a match made in heaven. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm giving him the um, lived experience of Pittsburgh as a source. <laughs> Um, okay, so should we move on to chapter seven? I feel like yeah, we should. Yeah. So chapter seven, the field laborers. So here we have uh, what is the largest sector still of the, of the emerging proletariat, right? Um, the England England is going pretty undergoing pretty rapid rural depopulation, but not so much as has kind of sometimes been said. It seems like. And uh, it remains the largest group of working class people are the are agricultural workers. And the main experience, or the main two things, it seems like, that the chapter is about are one, enclosure, and two, the poor laws. So what are the poor laws for people who might not know? The poor laws are, uh, I mean, they are the welfare state, essentially. They are the precursor to the modern welfare state. They're still, I mean... Its logic is still embedded in the welfare state in a bunch of important ways, but basically it dates to legislation that in England, I think, is passed in the early 17th century under Queen Elizabeth, um, to a very old. And um, it's a system for both keeping the poor alive and also disciplining and punishing them in various ways. Uh, so it's administered at the parish level in England. In this country, it winds up being administered by counties, usually. Um and a given parish will have um, a group of overseers of the poor who are usually, I think, like clergy people and landowners. You know, they're not they're not like democratically elected. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. And um, <laughs> the count, the parish um, gives what are called indoor and outdoor relief um, to the poor. Outdoor relief is when someone is judged unable to work and is sustained in some way, you know, in their in their home, um, f you know, with money from from that's that's raised on but through like local taxation essentially. Um, mm -hmm. And indoor relief is for people who are judged able to work but unwilling to do so. Um, 
and they are more or less incarcerated in the workhouse and made to work uh, in a basically a kind of penal labor system. Um, and this, you know, this system was set up at the beginning of the 17th century. It undergoes various modifications. And uh, in the period Thompson is talking about in particular, there's an experiment um, called Spinemland or the Spinemland system, uh, which he talks about throughout a little bit, but um, in particular on like 220 and 221, I think. Uh, and Spinemland is a kind of modification of the poor law system to try to make it a little bit more forgiving and generous under the pressure of the wars. Um, and uh, let's see. Here, I'll just read it from 221. The motives which led to the introduction of the various systems of poor relief, which related relief to the price of bread and to the number of children, were no doubt various. The Spinemland decision of 1795 was impelled by both humanity and necessity. But the perpetuation of Spinemland and Roundsman systems in all their variety was ensured by the demand of the larger farmers in an industry which has exceptional requirements for occasional or casual labor for a permanent cheap labor reserve. So interestingly, Thompson in this chapter says two kind of different things about uh, the more generous iterations of this welfare state. One, that it actually serves employers because it keeps their workforce alive between the periods when the employers are interested in paying them. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately it uh, is kind of a boon in various ways for, for employers. Um, yeah, he sort of says that throughout here. But then also in various moments there's a kind of political dimension to it too. Um, on... 223, for example, he says the poor rates were the laborer's last inheritance. Um, and he seems to kind of be arguing, and I think he would probably say that, uh, you know, the right of poor relief is a kind of, uh, you know, one of these many deposits of, you know, ancient struggles by English working class people, um, you know, in the system of norms and customs and traditions that govern how the classes relate to each other. Um and it represents, you know, one of these partial victories um, or the, it's, it's better and more generous aspects represent one of these kind of partial victories of working class organization, um, like Spinemland, for example. Sure. I mean, even to have the right at all, to have that be a norm, obviously, is there's something progressive towards that, even if the flip side of that coin is that then employers can sort of shirk off responsibility and, and put it back onto the state in lean times. Yeah, he also, I mean, he talks about employers um, basically firing people and then hiring them again at a lower wage from the workhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, you know, I mean, right. seems like something that basically happens again today. <laughs> yes. But, you know, there's, uh, I mean, as with all things like this for Thompson, um, it's constantly contested on, on 223. He writes, from 1815 to 1834, we're sliding forward in time very rapidly here also, by the way. Uh, but from 1815 to 1834, the contest continued on the side of the gentry and overseers, Economies, settlement litigation, stone breaking and punitive tasks, cheap labor gangs, the humiliations of labor auctions, even of men harnessed in carts on the side of the poor, 
threats to the overseers, sporadic sabotage, a, quote, servile and cunning or sullen and discontented spirit, an evident demoralization documented in page after page of the poor law commissioner's reports. And then he quotes, it would be better for us to be slaves at once than to work under such a system. When a man has his spirit broken, what is he good for? In the Spinamlin counties of the South, the laborers had their own bitter chest, bitter jest. The farmers, quote, keep us here on the poor rates like potatoes in a pit and only take us out for use when they can no longer do without us. Which gets us, I would say, to comrades. Like demoralization, that's what this movie is completely about and what it drives people to. That it's these the wages of the workers are constantly going are going down, not constantly, but they were at what, nine shillings in the movie, and then it goes down to seven, um, and then eventually to six, and so these workers are being driven into despondency. Yeah. True story, by the way. Right. How do you pronounce the name of I I think it's Tolpiddle. Even though it's it's spelled okay. Tolpuddle, but and our English listeners can write in, and I will correct myself on air. Uh, but I think it's Tolpiddle. Um, it's just one of those okay. English words that is said differently from how it is written. So, so if you had to tell the story of Tolpiddle, what's the story? Well, so you know, over the course of this chapter, Thompson talks about enclosures, which we should come back to, and you know, the struggle over poor relief. But basically, as you're saying, Alex. Uh, you know, this is intense downward pressure on wages. I think is significant upward uh, pressure on, on prices simultaneously, if I have that right. Um, people are starving, basically. And um, in Tolpiddle, which is in Dorset, which is the southwest of England, a Methodist preacher named uh, George Lovelace, right? Yes. Basically gets involved in trying to advocate for the agricultural workers in in the community um which leads to them forming a union um i'm not totally clear on exactly the legal situation at this point and in the movie it's sort of confusing because it suggested that actually what they did was no longer really illegal um i don't i don't know that history right that's what they say in the movie in any case uh, they are prosecuted for swearing illegal oaths. And I love this part of the movie, actually. Um, I think you see this kind of thing very rarely represented, in, even in labor films, although occasionally Made One has this too. Great great movie by John Sayles. Um, where you actually get to see uh, the kind of ritual dimension of workers committing themselves to one another. Um, which is important, you know? People like... Uh, when you when you're gonna take action together in adverse and threatening circumstances, you have to you know like be blood brothers or whatever. You have to like you have to ritualize that. In some you have way. to be blindfolded and led into the home, <laughs> and then yeah. swear that your motives are pure, as they do in the movie. Yeah, under a banner, which I didn't quite get, although it was a big deal. Clearly, a banner of a skeleton that said "Remember thine end." Yeah, I wasn't totally clear on the significance, other than it being some sort of threat to... Is it a threat, or is it... I don't like, know. No one sees it, except the members. Right. <laughs> but they say in the introduction induction ceremony, something like, if you ever are tempted to, like, right. give our information, remember thine end. Right. So it is a threat so, to uh, each other. <laughs> it, it seems like a threat to each other. Word. Is the, that's great. That's the only way I could understand it. Uh, my favorite version of this genre thing, by the way, was a famous episode um, 
maybe our British listeners won't know about, it, even if the Americans do, is in 19... I think it's 1911, maybe 1909, some year like that, uh, in Manhattan. Um, there's kind of this simmering labor dispute in the garment industry in Manhattan. And uh, there's a big meeting called at Cooper Union mm-hmm. uh, of garment workers. And Samuel Gomper is the head of the American Federation of Labor, who's a notoriously conservative figure, is there. And he's basically saying, like, cool it, you can't win. Let's just, like, all calm down. And this teenager named Clara Lemlick gets up on stage uh, you know, immigrant. Um, I think she's 15 or something when she does this. And more, I mean, there's not a mic, but she basically, I think, grabs the mic um, and says, again, I'm going to paraphrase, but something like, I've had enough of all this talk. I move that we immediately engage in a general strike. And the crowd is like, yeah, okay. And then she leads them in an oath in Yiddish, which is something like, if I should turn traitor to the cause, let my hand wither and fall off my arm. Mm-hmm. Um I just think it's hardcore and cool. And, you know, I wish that our, our organizing in these days had more of that. It doesn't, yours doesn't have that, Gabe? No. Hmm. That's why I failed. Makes one of us. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so this movie is about th- this gang or this group that's mentioned in this chapter, um, which was our excuse to watch it. Um, and they're sent, they're, they're, even though what they did maybe was legal, they're ultimately transported to Australia for seven years, I think. Um, and this whole committee, a solidarity committee springs up based in London. Um, and Thompson mentions this in the book that sort of the London trade unionists are very responsive to their, to this group's distress and persecution in part because they sort of think of them as, well, my ancestors before I came to London worked the fields. And so these are my people and my brothers. Yeah, I actually, I sort of loved that discussion in the chapter and wanted more of it. Um, you know, I mean, as you say, you did get a sense of this in the movie that really the kind of base of support for whom the Tulpital, the Tulpital martyrs, as they're called, um, although they're not killed, but uh, anyway, uh, for whom they're they're the most meaningful. But they are sent to Australia, which is which basically is, being yeah. killed. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, the Tulpital Martyrs are most kind of important to the urban trade unionists, as you say. Um, he says on two twenty nine and two thirty, the response of the urban trade unionists to the transportation of the Tulpital laborers was immediate and overwhelming, and to the later struggles of Arches Union, scarcely less so. And the yearning for land arises again and again, twisted in with the outworker's desire, an outworker being a cottage, you know, someone who produces in cottage industry, uh, the outworker's desire for an independence from the days of Spence to the Chartist land plan and beyond. Perhaps its vestiges are still with us today in allotments and garden plots. Land always carries associations of status, security, rights, more profound than the value of its crop. Here I thought two things. One, this reminded me of Jeremy Corbyn and his garden. <laughs> yes, so, yes. Uh, you know, Comrade John McDonald, if you're listening, uh, I hope you have had some of the jam that Jeremy Corbyn seems to make. Uh, <laughs> two, I mean, in this moment, in um, in this moment, in this chapter, I realized that more than elsewhere in the book, explicitly anyway, we're getting a nar- like a very close and detailed narrative of primitive accumulation, right? I mean, obviously that's going on in general. Yeah. Primitive accumulation is the name of the process by which the proletariat is made. It's stripped of its you know prior forms of life. Um, mm-hmm. And the whole book is about primitive accumulation at that level. 
but I feel like here in particular, with the struggle over poor relief and, and the struggle over enclosure, um, right? I mean, the fundamental thing that makes the working class is the experience of being pushed off the land um, or pushed off security in the land and reduced to wage labor, uh, which is first and foremost a kind of agrarian process in England. Right. We should talk about the enclosures and what they were, the specific acts and the whole process themselves. Yeah. Well, what do you want to say? Well, I can't speak to the specific enclosure <laughs> acts. No, me neither, really. <laughs> so um, oh, okay. We were, but, uh, I mean, I know there were multiple, I mean, enclosure was a very long process. It goes back centuries uh, in English history. I think back to the, I think it starts really in the 16th century, maybe the 17th. Um, and it goes through various phases and it's sort of like under, is legitimated under different regimes. So there's uh, the parliamentary enclosures, which I think is what's happening here, as opposed to an earlier phase, which I guess was not pursued through parliamentary means in the same way. Um, but basically, uh, you know, capitalism in England emerges in the countryside um, and it emerges as tenant farmers who rent land from kind of more aristocratic or gentry landowners um, come under pressure to increase their productivity. This is as I understand the story. Um, again, correct me if I'm wrong, friends. Uh, come under pressure to increase their productivity um, and engage in a whole set of procedures to do that, draining swamps, cr rotating crops, things like this that had not been done before. And part of that is fencing off common land. Um, right, that there are all, there's all this land to which ordinary agrarian rural people have had traditional access um, and which the farmers are able to, I mean, literally put fences around it and close and, you know, begin to police access to stripping the rural poor of their kind of basic means of survival, um, commodifying the land in a new way. Um, right. Thompson says on 217, in village after village, enclosure destroyed the scratch-as-scratch-can subsistence economy of the poor. The cow or geese, fuel from the common, gleanings, and all the rest. The cottager without legal proof of rights was rarely compensated. There's a poem from this period, which I, which I wrote down in my notes to read on air, which is just four lines. The law, And maybe you've heard before, it's famous. The law locks up the man or woman who steals the goose from off the common, but lets the greater felon loose who steals the common from the goose. Yeah. This also made me think of that goose game. Oh, God. By the way, we don't need to talk about it. <laughs> so, so Thompson describes enclosure, I think, in a memorable phrase. He says it's class robbery, um, which I think gets the point across pretty well. He says that on 218. He just, um, enclosure, when all the sophistications are allowed for, was a plain enough case of class robbery, played according to fair rules of property and law laid down by a parliament of property owners and lawyers. The object of the operation, higher rents, was attained throughout the Napoleonic Wars. So people are being pushed off their land that they're using to subsist and thus becoming laborers dependent on being hired out to others who own that land now. So this sounds very basic, but in fact, for Thompson, he sa this is his key point from the last chapter about, well, there may be an abs a relative increase in the standard of living, possibly wages are going up 
and people may even be able to purchase more things, there's this sense of persecution and exploitation and political oppression and this loss of a way of life that is growing into a social myth, basically, is what he's describing, this sort of idea of a golden age of the village as a social myth. But so people are feeling pressed. And this is why. It's also an intensely uneven process, which I feel like is important. In part, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's been going on a very long time, although it's kind of reaching its climax, I think, in this period. And it's produced this very uh, internally differentiated uh, rural working class. On 215, he breaks it down this way. Uh, not only do we face marked seasonal fluctuations in the demand for labor, but we have at least four different kinds of master-servant relationship. One, farm servants hired by the year or the quarter. Two, a regular labor force on the large farm, more or less fully employed the year round. Three, casual labor paid by day rate or piece rate. And four, more or less skilled specialists who might contract for a job. And then he goes through on the rest of the page that these people are actually in very different kinds of conditions. In the first category, declining over this period, there is the most security and the least independence, very low wages, long hours, but board and lodging in the farmer's household. In the second category will be found some of the best and some of the worst conditions. The plowman or shepherd kept in security by a prudent farmer, his wife and children given preference in casual work, teenage farmhands at the other extreme, uh, living in hay lofts and subject to dismissal at any time, and in between, quote, those unhappy men whom necessity has compelled to become the slaves of one man, living in tied cottages and bound to work for certain low wages all the year. In the third category, there is immense variation, pauper labor, women and children at pauper wages, Irish migratory workers, a rare Irish appearance. Um, and finally, you know, um, in the fourth category, we have countless differences of practice and disguised subcontracting or family earnings, which play havoc with any statistical tables. So I think he's doing two things here, right? One is, again, pushing back on kind of quantitative analysis in any regard of this process by saying that, the you know, the mean of these different groups is actually a meaningless point. Yeah, I mean, this entire chapter is just averages don't make don't mean anything and aren't relevant. Thompson hates averages. Yeah. <laughs> I love that that is how the entire art, he just constantly is going back to. So what is an average? It's nothing like that's his whole point. But I mean, he's showing it convincingly. But I wonder also, and I don't think he quite made this explicit, but there's an interesting kind of uh, analysis of collective action in the second part of the chapter, right, where he starts to talk about how this process begins to le lead to all of this um, discontent and upheaval and so on. Oh, his Tolpital is itself, a, a, you know, one manifestation. Um, but he doesn't think it's that successful, right, or even that uh, serious in the way that he seems to think other kinds are, are kind of more threatening. Um, and it seems like he thinks the main political consequence of the discontent of this period in the countryside is how it plays out in urban consciousness, as we were talking about a minute ago. Um, and I wonder the extent to which that's about the stratification of the rural workforce. I mean, I'm guessing, but I wonder if that's part of why he's talking about that. Well, he says on 225, I think he's talking about what you're saying. Um, it's, it was easier to emigrate than to resist for reinforcing the exploitative relationship with that was that of political repression, illiteracy, exhaustion, the emigration from the village of the ambitious, the sharp-witted, and the young, 
the shadow of the squire and parson, the savage punishment or of enclosure or bread rioters and of poachers all combine to induce fatalism and to inhibit the articulation of grievances. Yeah, right before I, the, the, the line right before that, I'm surprised you didn't read, Alex, because uh, one, it has <laughs> okay. a great catalog instead of a catalog of like cool 18th century crafts it has a catalog of like the lumpen proto-proletariat but two it connects to the movie in a good way during these years the exploitive relationship was intensified to the point where it simply ceased to pay this kind of pauper labor turned out to be turnip pilferers alehouse scroungers poachers and layabouts so that's a pretty cool list. Turn up pilferers, alehouse scroungers, poachers, and layabout. I'm an alehouse scrounger. I'm a layabout. I don't know about I'm you. a layabout. Tag oh, okay. yourself. <laughs> um, but uh, there was an amazing scene in the movie, I thought, actually, of turnip pilfering, which I have to admit is not a category of like food theft that I had thought about before. Um, no, me neither. But there's a scene in which one of the people who will become one of the Tulpital martyrs is starving and kind of like sneaks into like a kind of line of bushes basically and reaches his arm through into a private field. Um, And you just sort of see his arm grab a bunch of greens and rip a turnip out of the ground, which he eats then like an apple. Uh, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Like a raw, dirty turnip. Um, And he sobs while doing it. he sobs while doing it, yes. And then he replaces it. (laughs) I shouldn't laugh. It's really a, a kind of moving portrait of like... Yeah, it's a very moving Like, scene, like real, Kate. you know, uh, real desperation. Um, it was when he put it back that I, I started thinking it was funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's, you know, this... Um, this kind of like revolutionary discontent in this in this moment in this, in this group that Thompson is kind of a little bit not dismissive of but doesn't take as seriously as he takes other things uh, at the bottom of two twenty five um, he writes after the wars with soaring prices and the return of soldiers to their villages there was some stirring of revolt and then he quotes the burden that is now laid on us we are determined to bear no longer ran a letter from the Yeovil district signed with a bleeding heart. Blood and blood and blood, a general revolution there must be. But the very violence of such threats points to a sense of impotence. Only in 1816, in East Anglia, where the laborers were frequently employed in large gangs, did serious disturbance break out. The demand for a minimum wage, two shillings a day, was united with the demand for price maximums. There were food riots, forced levies for money from the gentry, and the destruction of threshing machines. But disorder was brutally repressed and thrust back into the underground of the poaching war, the anonymous letter, the flaming corn rick. I mean, it's kind of surprising that he doesn't take this more seriously. Uh, He says later, you know, as he says throughout the book, that the accounts uh, from the workers side or the laborers side are few because they are rarely written down. I don't know. Maybe it was more widespread than he realizes. Hard to say. Yeah, I mean, he does. He is doing the thing here that he frequently does of... Show, trying to show how defeated movements or defeated moments of revolt pay off in certain ways ideologically later. Um, like on 2.30, um, he quotes from Fergus O'Connor, who is a leader of the Chartists, who are the most significant English working class movement of the first half of the 19th century. We haven't gotten to them yet, generally, because they're a little later. But he quotes Fergus O'Connor saying... 
Here is that we may live to see the restoration of Old English times, Old English fair, Old English holidays, and Old English justice, and every man live by the sweat of his brow, when the weaver worked at his own loom and stretched his limbs in his own field, when the laws recognized the poor man's right to an abundance of everything. Um, and he's compa- he compares this to the kind of Norman yoke myth, right? The idea that there was once a free, free country. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that I think is, um, I mean, you can see Thompson's logic, I guess, working in that. Sure. Yeah. He also has, I mean, as far as other things to say about this chapter, he has this, inc- it ends with this incredible uh <laughs> quote about he's saying that a lot of the anger was directed at the tithe consuming clergy um a lot of the rural uh anger and so i wanted to read from this letter um that he about um these these people in the community had committed arson against the clergy um and what they where does it begin for the last 20 years we have been in a starving condition to maintain your damn pride what we have done now is sore against our will but will your hearts is so hard as the heart of Pharaoh. So now as for this fire, you must not take it as an affront for if you hadn't been deserving it, we shouldn't have done it. (laughs) And it goes on to say, as for this little fire, the writer concluded with equable ill humor. Don't be alarmed. It will be a damn deal worse when we burn down your barn. And I just thought it was an amazing, it reminded me of um, our guest who had talked about riots and how common arson was um, that there's this, even as Thompson is saying this wasn't that widespread, um, this revolt, there's these letters being written that are just incredible um, with people burning down clergymen's buildings. Yeah. Also, uh, the culture of rhyming, which I also noticed very strongly in the movie, that people like yes. are really into communicating in rhyme. Yeah, I couldn't tell how factual that was. <laughs> But it's true that it's here. So. I mean, it was just funny to think about the movie, which, you know, I feel like if our if our listeners actually have slogged through the 14 parts of it or whatever. Um, I actually found the movie quite moving and beautiful, even though it was very slow. But uh, a funny thing about it was this framing device that it had, which I didn't quite, I could never quite wrap my head around. Um, where it seemed to be that it was the... Like a lanternist, which is a kind of pre-photography and cinema form of entertainment where someone comes with an illumination and various panels that they illuminate and kind of move around for you. A lanternist is, t- is telling the frame story, right? That's sort of what was happening. But that, but then the lanternist yeah. appears in the movie a bunch of t- – like in the story he's telling a bunch of times as like right. a storyteller figure who's then encou- who's encountered – by the characters in the story and then he talks in rhyme right i mean he's telling the story of what he saw right even though that's not really true because he wasn't there for all of it um i was trying to get a sense of like is this a figure in english history that's like plays this unique some sort of radical role was there i mean he talks about at one point george lovelace says you know go create a union of lanternists and i was like you know did that ever exist i i would assume not because they seem like very lone figures traveling from town to town but yeah i didn't really understand the significance of that being why it was framed that way me neither but i don't know (laughs) Uh, it seemed like a strange a strange kind of added dimension on what was you know um I don't know. I mean, I also thought 
an interesting thing about the movie, very much in line with what we were just talking about, was obviously people are really poor and miserable, right? Um, and starving. But there is also this portrait that it kind of paints of a kind of organic village community and village life um, mm-hmm. in which there are like all of these sort of folk forms of entertainment and leisure and community. I mean, there's a lot of like, uh, you know, entertainers come to town and dance and this kind of thing, which I don't know how much that was me kind of projecting something onto it uh, or or what, but it really, you did get a little hint of like the kind of merry old English village, you know, that pre-exi- right. pre-existed the rise of capital um, mm-hmm. and was being, and the way that, that uh, the kind of agrarian capitalist is experienced as this kind of invader against this organic pre-existing community. Mm-hmm. Which may be somewhat real and also somewhat mythologized, yeah. which, which is what Thompson's saying yeah. too. Do you have anything else you wanted to say about the movie? I mean, uh, I feel like we should talk about the insane Australia stuff. Yeah. Okay. So they go to Australia. First of <laughs> if all, we have to. <laughs> first of all, Vanessa Redgrave, who is like an amazing actress, one of the greatest actors of like 20th century English language film, I think. Love Vanessa Redgrave. Impeccable politics, presumably why she was in this movie. Great crusader for yes. Palestinian rights. Um, I think a Trotskyist. Um, anyway, she's in the movie for like two minutes. <laughs> at, and it's at the end. At the end. It's after like two hours or something. Um, that's okay. That's not, that's not an issue. But I was surprised. I was like, I kept waiting the whole time for Vanessa Redgrave to show up. Um, <laughs> you had to get to like part 11 of the 13 <laughs> parts. <laughs> five lines. Um, yes. I don't know. I actually, I despite the weird scene where... Um, the chain gang boss forces oral sex on his dog, kind of. It, it p- appears to be, and then is—that's what it appears to be. And then is yes. is and then is murdered by um, a rebellion. The chain by gang. the chain gang, which you know is kind of kind of cool. Um, I actually, you know, I, I think to see the penal colony and like, you know, the dynamics of that in whatever little way you do, I found quite interesting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the kind of dynamic between the basically the landlord and governor class and, you know, the indigenous people and the white prisoners. Um, I mean, there wasn't a ton of like story or plot to it, but um, right. I think that's not that's not something I have seen rendered that much and put as clearly in the context of class conflict as it obviously belongs. Yeah, I have, I'm no expert on Australia, so I can't really speak to it. I did live there for a summer, but I didn't become an expert. I actually followed the story of Ned Kelly, which is another class here, folk class hero of the Australian working class. But we can talk about Ned Kelly <laughs> another day. <laughs> um, I mean, it was. I also liked about the movie actually after reading all of this Thompson, um, that amazing early scene where. There's a one of the um, one of the people who will become one of the martyrs, a, you know, a, a agricultural worker, is in church, and I guess it's probably a Church of England church. It's very, you know, it's kind of fancy and a little bit formal. And the vicar, who turns out to be this like totally loathsome snake, um, is giving a sermon on how you know it's God's will that 
some men are great and some are small and you know that's preaching that's, submission that's basically things, preaching submission yeah um it wasn't immediately obvious to me because i not a Christian or an English person that this was going to be a Church of England church. Like, you know, we read all this stuff about how Methodism, you know, also preached uh, a certain kind of conservatism and prevented revolution. So, you right. know, I didn't think it was a Methodist church, but because of the formal regalia, but I wasn't sure. Anyway, uh, this worker gets upset and storms out of the sermon and, you know, walks across town to a kind of homespun church house. And that turns out to be the Methodist church where... George Loveless is preaching. Um, and to see the kind of class politics of religion rendered in that way and the way that it, it's, um, you know, it's the social organization of the community, right? A huge part of the social organization of, of the people of the mm-hmm. village. Obviously, the time when they gather is on Sunday, um, like most of all. And so I, 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 I don't know. I, was, I appreciated that. And also then that guy's mother is so mad at him for leaving the church that, you know, that's why he ends up having to steal a turnip. She won't feed him and he's hungry. And so he ends up. Is that what happened? Yeah. He's <laughs> saying, Mom, let me in. and But she's angry. And I think it's because he left the church. And now he's hanging out with the riffraff of the Methodists. I somehow missed that. It he's was up not, to no good. It was not the easiest movie to follow if you're not Pitt. A lot of people looked alike. Um, I don't know what that was about, but I couldn't tell who was who a little bit. But yes, I think that's what happened. Yeah. And also they did this thing, which again, I kind of thought was interesting, but it took it threw me for a loop at first, um, where almost all the important events are not like thematized on screen. Like, you know, the trial where the Tolpital martyrs are convicted and sentenced to transportation. Yeah. You don't see it. Um, like it's just sort of referred to in conversation between a couple of characters after it's happened. Uh, and that that kind of thing happens again and again and again, you know, um, like the like they get sent to Australia and then the London Dorset Committee to organize for their support. Kind of you get a little glimpse of it and then it, you see their lives in Australia for a while. And then it emerges that they've been pardoned because of all the agitation on their behalf. And you learn that through a letter that they get um, as opposed to, you know, seeing that kind of thing happen. And, you know, the. Uh, it just made me think about just the immense difficulties of organizing with these means of communication. Right. I mean, it seems silly to say, but the idea of internationalism, you know, or of like organizing on any large geographical scale in this context is it just like, how could you do it? Yeah, it's unclear to me how they even find each other on such a big space, like the penal colony in Australia. <laughs> but so, yeah, the actual logistics of this entire movie were somewhat questionable. Uh, oh, me, it's, or un- something like unclear. Happened, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just unclear to me yeah. how the communication was maintained. Um, so for next week, let's do chapters eight and nine. Sounds good. All right. This is good. This is fun. All right, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Casualties of History, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. Thanks to our producer, Sarah Hurd, and to Joey La Neve de Francesco for the music. You can find us at Blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com backslash J-A-C-O-B-I-N. Or at Patreon.com backslash Casualties of History. 
If you want to join in the conversation about the reading, sign up on Patreon and you'll be added to our Slack.